is Your Working Life, a podcast that provides you with tools, inspiration, and resources so you can enjoy your career and love your life. I'm Caroline Dowd Higgins. I'm a speaker and a career and executive coach. And today I am really excited to welcome Dr. Allison Gill to the show. Dr. Allison Gill is also known as AG, and she's given me permission to call her that wonderful name today. And she's going to be talking about her podcast network. And she is known to focus on truth in politics, news, and the arts. And I was telling her right before the show started, I'm a total fangirl. So I'm really delighted to have her here today. AG, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Oh my goodness. I am uh, the beneficiary of your great, great wisdom. So you have this amazing journey and today you're known for your podcast network and your career is centered around podcasting, but it really started as a hobby. So would you bring the listeners back who may not know your story maybe to about 2017 and what led you to first starting the podcast Muller, she wrote. Yeah, absolutely. So at that point, uh, I had been a government employee working at the Department of Veterans Affairs for about, uh, let's see, uh, nine years. And I had been a stand-up comedian and a musician. So all these things going on and, and a student, of course, too, because, you know, some of us just can't get enough of going to school. And um, it was around that time, it was about five months into the Mueller investigation, and I found myself wanting a source for all of the news that pertained to the Trump-Russia probe. And because, you know, on the, on the mainstream media, we get a mix of all of the headlines that were happening. And as you can imagine, there were many headlines that were happening uh, as, you know, with that, that same year that uh, the Trump administration took over. Um, so I was watching a documentary that the MSNBC was showing. It was a documentary about Watergate. It's a, it was made in like 2013, I think. It was called All the President's Men Revisited. And, uh, you know, about the famous Woodward and Bernstein reporting from Watergate. And I think they were showing it to kind of illustrate some of the parallels between Watergate, Nixon, and Trump Russia. And uh, like I said, Mueller had been uh, appointed for about five months earlier and I thought to myself, you know, I bet in a decade or two, they'll be doing documentaries on the Trump-Russia probe. And I, I wanted to be a part of that somehow. I wanted to record it as it was happening. But, you know, I'm not a journalism student or a graduate from Columbia Journalism School. I don't have a news desk. So I decided a podcast would be the best way to go. And that's how it all began. I set up a couple of microphones in my kitchen. And uh, the, the, I think the weekend that the first indictments dropped in the Mueller probe against uh, Rick Gates and Paul Manafort, we recorded our first episode. And that's how it went. Wow. I love it. Around the kitchen table. But at the time, as you said, you were working for the VA. So was there any pushback or tension since you were a government employee? Uh, well, I had uh, I, I thought about that because most government employees, not all, but most government employees are very concerned about ethics and policy and not wanting to run afoul of things like the Hatch Act, which disallows you to, you know, campaign financially for political uh, office seekers. And so I actually consulted with a couple of lawyers to make sure that I wasn't doing anything untoward. Uh, I completely kept separate 
my work for the government and my uh, podcasting. I considered it a hobby. And, you know, like I told you, I was a comedian for 10 years before that and uh, never really brought up anything work-related with the comedy and vice versa. And and so, you know, I changed my name to AG, to my initials, so that, uh, and I, you know, I never said I represented the government. I never talked about what agency I worked for. I kept them very, very separate. Um, I only recorded and did work on the podcast at night and on the weekends, uh, even if I was on leave. And so, I, you know, I had to make sure that those two streams didn't cross to, to bring up a Ghostbusters reference um, because, you know, total protonic reversal. But, um, you know, it didn't quite work out the way I planned. But that was that was the idea was to not have them have anything to do with each other. But things changed because then the Trump administration launched an investigation into your podcast. So would you pull that thread? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Right around uh, the beginning of 2019, when the Mueller report was about to come out. And now we know in hindsight that uh, the, the attorney general, Bill Barr, wanted to help Donald Trump sort of spin the findings to make it seem like there, there was no no collusion, no obstruction, you know, that whole uh, camp spin campaign. They went on a three week tour with uh, after Barr got the got the findings, but before he made them public. But at that time, I was getting ready to put out uh, basically a counter narrative to what the, the Trump's Department of Justice was saying, which was I was just going to go through the entire Mueller report page by page. It was a 20 part series in addition to the regular podcast we were putting out. And uh, I think they didn't like that very much. But me sitting at my kitchen table had no idea that they were even listening. Uh, but they were and they were they were um, monitoring my social media. And so they launched a fact-finding investigation into my podcast and tried to find ways to fire me for cause. But like I said, I prepped myself. I made sure I wasn't breaking any rules or violating any policies or going running afoul of any ethical guidelines. And so they couldn't find anything on me, but they not for not trying. Uh, and it wasn't until much later through FOIA requests that I found out that they were actually listening all the way up to the secretary of the VA level and that Trump's office of general counsel was advising my supervisor on how to on how to remove me from my position. So that, that was interesting uh, for, you know, for somebody who who was like, look, I'm just sort of a mid-level person, you know, and we, we follow the stories of folks like Andy McCabe, who worked at the FBI and Pete Strzok, who was on the Mueller team and all, you know, all these other uh, big name people that, that Donald Trump went after. Uh, but as it turns out, he wasn't just going after the big named fo the big name folks. He was reaching all the way down into mid-level Department of VA uh, management to people who were doing podcasts at their kitchen tables. His ego knew no bounds. So that's that's what ended up happening in March of 2020. They ended up terminating me for, for uh, not for cause. They terminated me for being medically unfit because I have PTSD, which is weird because I worked at the VA. And, you know, I think 80% of people who work at the VA are veterans. And yeah, and, but, you know, I have to tell you, they didn't really think ahead because had they kept me on board, uh, I wouldn't have been able to raise half a million dollars to get them out of office. Yeah, I was just going to say, they they did you a favor. Yeah. 
Yeah, they really did. And and it, again, it wasn't anything that I was uh, planning on doing. I was planning on retiring with the Department of Veterans Affairs. I, I loved that job. I loved helping veterans get access to health care, uh, as well as active duty service members. I was a tri-care liaison to the Department of Defense. It was my dream job. I, ended, I, I went to school to get a, 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 you know, a PhD in public health so that I could continue to do that job and do it well. Uh, but, you know, uh, the universe has other plans for us sometimes. Well, I'm glad that the universe found you and good reference to Ghostbusters. So you had me at Ghostbusters. But, you know, AJ, you really are one of the hottest voices in today's liberal political media realm. And how how do you feel now about turning media into your career? Because this probably wasn't part of the original plan and, and changed out of uh, necessity. Yeah, no, it's, it's, I'm, it's still try like, it's still settling in. Like I'm still, yeah. <laughs> like, I'm still trying to figure it out because this is what I would have done if I didn't have another job to do. You know, people ask me, you know, I, I remember going into my financial planner's office, like, well, what, what age do you want to retire? And I'm like, and I started to thinking, thinking about retiring. And I was like, well, I would just keep doing this. Like if I worked at the VA, and retired, this is what I would be doing this media, this podcasting, this, you know, reaching out, speaking truth to power, helping whistleblowers, um, you know, helping folks feel like they're not alone. So they can be, they can't be gaslit anymore. It's what I would be doing uh, if I had my choice to do anything. So it's, it's actually just been um, such a, such a joy, to be honest. Well, that's exciting. I can hear the enthusiasm in your voice. I want to go back though, because you are a Navy veteran. And at that point in your, in your life, did you think that would be a lifelong career before you moved on to VA? Yes, I did. Uh, I joined the Navy. Uh, my father was in the Air Force, um, and he was a, a fluent Russian speaker and he helped intercept Russian messages and, and he ran, war game tabletop exercises to ensure that our global communications would withstand a preemptive nuclear Russian strike. Um, and so, he, you know, he was there in the Vietnam era because, as you know, we know Russia was helping the North Vietnamese in that war. And uh, I, I always wanted to be of service, but I didn't quite know how. And after my father passed away because of exposure to Agent Orange, um, he, I, you know, and, and again, that the VA at the time didn't recognize Agent Orange as a disability, not until a year after he passed away. Uh, and I, you know, I wanted, I, he left me a little bit of, of money for college. Um, and I, I used it up in about three semesters and, um, I, I wanted to finish college and I wanted to serve, uh, somehow. So that's why, that's why I joined the Navy. Wow. Wow. Well, we'll honor your dad with that thought, and we'll be right back after a quick break. Hello there. It's Caroline Dowd Higgins. I know that hiring the right speaker for your event is a tremendous responsibility. You need a speaker who can customize content to meet your goals and someone who will work within your budget and engage your audience. Meeting planners around the world have recognized me for being easy to work with and uniquely suited to create dynamic programming for your needs. My style is high energy and engaging with practical takeaways that participants can implement in their lives and careers immediately. Whether you're looking to retain or grow top talent, create healthy workplace cultures or prevent burnout in your organization, 
I create customized content to help recharge, reignite, or reinvent your career. From the boardroom to the training room or the convention hall, I will help your audience thrive. Let's talk about how I can help you achieve your special event goals. You can find me at carolinedowdhiggins.com. Okay, so you joined the Navy and then moved on to the Veterans Administration. But as we talked about earlier, you are a Renaissance woman. You've had a band, you've been in stand-up comedy. You are clearly a lifelong learner who has earned incredible higher education degrees. So you're hungry intellectually. I can just hear it in your voice. How do you feed that? Yeah, I've been just sort of, you know, when I worked at the VA, I would go back to school, I would get the PhD, I was doing comedy, I was doing music. Um, And now that, you know, we we went into podcasting, and what I think, uh, you know, a few years later, we're in lockdown for the for the pandemic. And I just had so much free time on my hands, because I no longer worked at the VA, I wasn't doing stand up comedy, we couldn't go play music anywhere. So I just kept building on podcasting, co-hosting other shows and advising other folks on their podcasts and helping some other podcast networks recruit shows and develop shows. Um, and, you know, I, I found that I had a, a knack for it. And then, of course, once we were out allowed out into the wild again, I kind of didn't have time for much else. And so now I'm mostly focused on on building this new network I wanted I, you know, I found working with some other podcast networks out there that, um, you know, they're mostly male dominated. It's a male dominated industry and their focus is monetization. And that's not where my heart was. And so I wanted to start my own network that was more about the vision is more about getting more voices out there that speak truth to power, that help folks not feel alone, that that help break down what's going on in the world into digestible pieces so that, you know, you can, you can stay with it without, you know, fatiguing yourself or finding yourself burning out uh, and to work, help work on elections. And, you know, I've, I've always been an advocate for uh, getting out the vote, no matter who you're going to vote for, but you know, the more Americans vote, the more representative government we have. Uh, And now we're facing autocratic creep. And so most of what I try to do on a daily basis is to get shows and get voices out there that can help push back on autocracy and help preserve democracy, both here and globally. Well, as a consumer of your podcasts, I absolutely appreciate your truth to power. It is transformational. and, And I, for one, thank you for that. As a fellow podcaster, I, I understand what you said about it being a male-dominated industry. And I, I'm curious, were there challenges transitioning from a podcast host to now being the owner of MSW Media uh, Podcast Network? That must have been uh, quite a transition in and of itself. Yeah. I mean, in in some ways, yes. But in other ways, I, I have learned this fantastic new talent called delegating. Um, and I was never very good at that. You know, when I had my government job or when I was going to school, I didn't like group projects. I didn't like to have to rely on anybody, but I, you know, I found that by opening myself up to incredible groups of talented, resourceful, diverse people that I can actually rely 
on those independent voices to create their own content, uh, and I'm here to support them. And uh, also for, you know, I have a, a small shop over here. We only have a handful of employees. Uh, and I, you know, I like to keep it small so that I can, I can pay them extremely well. And I, and I've learned to delegate, I've learned to let go a little bit. And I think a lot of that comes from, you know, some, you know, business acumen, but also from my journey with PTSD about being able to let go and trusting others. Uh, I think I've come a long way, um, because, you know, while I've done everything I've done in my life, I've also been trying to heal from what happened to me in the military, and I feel like I've come a long way. And so that delegation has really helped. Uh, and just to, to be able to work with such incredible people and, you know, not even just people in my team, but other networks out there, you know, the Midas Touch guys, uh, um, the Stephanie Miller network, uh, you know, just to be able to partner with people who have the same vision has been really, really inspiring. And so it wasn't, it was an interesting transition, but I think a very natural one for me. You know, I appreciate your your vulnerability. I think that's one of the things that makes you so compelling and real and relatable. And I ask all my listeners to go there. And, and I want to ask you, is there a big, fabulous fail in your life that, that you would share with this global audience to humanize you? Because we all look up to you as this extraordinary figure. And Tell us something that that you failed at and what you learned from it. Um, yeah, I have I have a big glaring failure, and that is um, that is after um, after I got out of the military um, shortly thereafter, and I am a survivor of military sexual trauma. And you know, when I tried to report my assault, my sexual assault, uh, I was tw- I was very young, twenty twenty one and very impressionable and easily gaslit. And they wanted to brush it all under the rug and they frightened me and they did a good job at it because they said, you know, if you, if you want to do this, if you file a false report, you could be kicked out. You could be dishonorably discharged. It'll follow you forever. They threatened to charge me with adultery because my attacker was married. And so they said, let's just chalk this up to a bad decision on your part. And I believed it. I blamed myself. And that's very common um, for survivors of sexual assault to blame yourself uh, for, you know, being there, dressing the way you were dressed, et cetera. I mean, these are very common tropes. But the problem is, is that I believed it so much that it was my fault that when my best friend um, a couple of years after was uh, sexually assaulted, I because I blamed myself, <clears throat> I also found myself asking her the same questions they asked me. Like, why, why did you flirt with him? What, you know, why did you let him come home with you? Why were you drinking? <clears throat> Are you, you know, and those kinds of very victim blaming questions. And, and at the time I hadn't worked through it, that, that it wasn't my fault. And so it seemed like most people who survived it had some sort of blame. And it wasn't until years later uh, with a lot of work and realizing that it had nothing to do with me and it wasn't my fault that I had blamed the wrong person. And that was one of truly the biggest uh, regrets of my life. We are now best friends um, and we have been for 26 years, but that was, that was hard to face, you know, my own uh, shortcomings in, in that particular situation. And but also give showing myself some grace uh, as my best friend did by, by understanding that 
it was because of something that happened to me, not who I am. Thank you for sharing and being so vulnerable there. That means a lot to me and our listeners. And, and I'm, I'm proud of you also for saying, look, as we fail, we learn and that's how we recover and that's how we are resilient. So thank you for giving yourself grace. Are you still involved in issues related to veterans and women in the military? That's such a a passion for you. Mm, Yes, absolutely. In fact, uh, recently the Washington Post published an op-ed that I wrote uh, after Roe was overturned. And I said, look, this is going to severely damage national security and military readiness. And it could, in certain states, force women, you know, to have the babies that are a product of sexual assault. It could force them into that. And because, you know, I immediately, and as humans, we do this, we think about our situations and how this would impact us if we, you know, if we were, uh, if it were to impact us. And I, you know, I remember when my sexual assault in the military resulted in a pregnancy, I was able to go off base on a, on a weekend uh, without having to tell anybody in the military and, and yeah. get reproductive health care, abortion care at a Planned Parenthood clinic. And I thought, oh my gosh, there's going to be so many people who aren't going to be able to, to do that. They'll have to put in requests for leave, for travel to another state. They'll have to say why. They'll have to, you know, because you can't just leave when you're in the military. Right, right. And so I was putting out a, a, a call to the Pentagon, to our um, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin and to the President of the United States and the White House, like we need to have policies that immediately grant leave for medical travel. Um, we need to have the Department of Veterans Affairs at least offer abortions in the cases of uh, life of the mother, rape, and incest. And uh, you know, we we need to push the Military Justice Improvement Act again, which was kind of watered down in the NDAA the last time it went through. And we need to look at some of these rules and policies now that Roe is overturned. And I'm, I'm happy to say, I don't know if it was because of my op-ed or because of other uh, veterans or people pushing uh, for this, but the, the rules now have changed uh, and leave at least for two branches. And I think they're on their way to all four or five, I should say, uh, allow for that automatic approval of uh, medical travel. And the VA has added Uh, cases of rape and incest uh, to their already existing policy of life of the mother for uh, abortion care. So I'm I'm proud and happy that I've been able to work with um, a lot of people in high up in the government to to to, you know, make these changes. And and I wish we didn't have to. um, But, you know, this is where we are until until we can you know, vote, vote in more Democrats, expand the court and, and uh, take back uh, our entire citizenship as as people who can become pregnant. You nailed it. Well, I thank you for your advocacy. It is uh, a game changer. AG, one other thread that I want to pull. Um, you have a very unique experience in your life transitioning from military and government work to the other side, right? Whether we call it the corporate or the business world or the media world, any thoughts? Because we've got uh, folks listening around the world working in all different sectors, but I know our our military and our government folks uh, have very unique experiences. What advice would you have from them for them as they transition to other careers? Oh my gosh, I'm so excited that you've asked me this because recently I was able to give a speech on National Whistleblowers Day and the the crux of my speech was that 
we all have the power in whatever industry and organization we work at as you know as leaders to shape the culture of that organization to see errors and mistakes and failures as opportunities and not something to be punished and to allow for whistleblowers to come forward without fear of retribution or retaliation. And I think if we as leaders move forward in the world and take that idea from the government, when it when it works properly, it works well, into the private sector and, and you know, just understand that we all have that ability to lead our organizations into seeing failure as opportunity and putting whistleblowers in a positive light, I think that that will make a huge difference. Dr. Allison Gill, thank you so much for joining me on your working life today. I am eternally grateful for the opportunity to talk with you about social justice and truth to power. Thank you for being a badass and inspiring truth and journalism. I appreciate you. Caroline, it's been so great to talk to you. Yes, if you if people want to find me and follow me, uh, my my Twitter account is at Muller She Wrote. You can see all of the amazing shows from independent podcasters at mswmedia.com. And you can also uh, listen to my daily news podcast. It comes out every morning. It's news with swearing. There's a little bit of appropriate profanity in there. It's called The Daily Beans, and you can get it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or SoundCloud. And even better, leave a review because this will help new listeners find us online. And a special thanks to my podcast colleagues, Laura Deck, Executive Director of Publicity and Communications, and Claire McInerney, Executive Producer. Thank you for making this show awesome for our global audience. I'm Caroline Dowd-Higgins. Thanks for listening.